Hello and welcome to Shameless, the celebrity and pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. You're joined, as always, by Melbourne journalist Michelle Andrews, that would be me, and Zara McDonald, that would be you. Hello. Coming up on today's show, who in the world won Doggo of Shameless, plus the divorce announcement that we care deeply about and do not know why, and the rise of medfluencers, doctors, dietitians, and nurses who are making money on Instagram. Then, finally, the opinion piece on the Karen meme that was so contentious, it was the top trending topic on Twitter in Australia over the weekend. But first, Zara, how was your week? It was a great week. We had a wonderful week. We did tea with Jam and Claire on Thursday night and I think by this point I have just about recovered from having to dance on stage. In, in front of 600 people. Yeah, and I can't dance at the best of times. I can't dance in front of no one. <sighs> you know the awful thing about that? We got to work on the Thursday morning and we're like, we need to come up with some kind of dance routine or like practice dance moves so we're not awkward up on stage. We did that and we were still the fucking worst. And if you don't know what the worst looks like, go onto our Instagram page at Shameless Podcast and we kind of made ourselves a meme. That's how bad we are. It was it was horrendous. The other thing that happened at Tea with Jam and Claire is I made a bet on stage for $500 without Michelle's consent because I was in a conversation with Jamila Rizvi, who hosted the evening with Claire Bowditch. <laughs> And Jamila didn't think that we could ever get Meghan Markle on the podcast. Which we can't. We well, can't get Meghan Markle on the podcast. Truthfully, neither do I, but I got caught up in the heat of the moment. And I made this bet to Jamila and I said, if we can get Meghan Markle on the podcast in the next two years from this day, she has to donate $500 to our charity has of choice. Has to be one of the dumbest calls you've ever made. We, like, we can't get Margot Robbie on the podcast. What makes you think we're going to get Meghan Markle? We've never asked Margot Robbie. We could get Margot Robbie. You talk, you talk me through this. How are you going to get in contact with Meghan Markle? It's not like she left the palace and is all of a sudden the every woman who wants to come on Shameless in Conversation. She's, well, everyone does want to come on Shameless in Conversation. Anyway, Meghan Markle is very soon probably going to be starring in a Netflix show. She's probably going to have her own podcast. She's going to need things to spruik and she's going to need to spruik them in Australia and I will fight for our right to get her on even if it's for like a two-minute voice note. And you think that we can offer Meghan Markle anything? You don't think that she's got enough PR machinery behind her? Anyway, guys, see you in two years. <laughs> that's our $500 that's on the line, by the way. Yeah, I know. That's being docked from your pay. So if anyone wants to help me with this one, please do. <laughs> so that happened to the one thing I want to recommend this week that I did recommend in our newsletter was an episode of the 7am podcast. It was called Profiting from Auschwitz, How 4 Million Books Were Sold on Fabrications. I had mentioned recently that I read The Tattooist of Auschwitz over summer and thought it was a brilliant read, but as I had finished the read, I did do a bit of a deep dive on a lot of the controversy around that book, which surrounds some kind of factual inaccuracies. What do they mean by that? As someone who hasn't read the book? Well, this podcast, the reason it's so good is it very simply explains the controversies. But one of the main ones is that a couple of the details, a couple of the core details are wrong, like the identifying numbers of one of the main characters that they use. And while the author says it's not completely fact, she says it is based on someone's true story. And I think if a fundamental fact like that is wrong, a lot of other the people are saying, well, what else could be wrong? The author, Heather Morris, has also gone on to write another book, which is called Silka's Journey, which is even more controversial than The Tattooist of Auschwitz, just because a lot of the family of Silka, who she's writing about, completely reject her interpretation of wow. history. And in this podcast, I won't spoil it, but I couldn't recommend it more. It's only 20 minutes. The investigative journalist, Christine Keneally, who was interviewed as part of the episode, as kind of the expert on there, said that she kind of likened this to Holocaust denialism 
system. Not because it's denying the Holocaust took place, but if there's that many factual inaccuracies in the book about the Holocaust, it's kind of equated to the same thing because it's misconstruing entire parts of history, which I found a really interesting point to make. I couldn't recommend this more. Even if you haven't read the book, I just think it's a very interesting perspective about the kind of books that are selling really well at the moment and the controversy surrounding them. I am interested as well. I know this isn't a segment, but just a point that I have been considering a lot lately. Why books about Auschwitz sell so well and why content about Auschwitz? Obviously, it is a huge moment in human history and obviously the most dire and disasterly moment in human history, but why we want to read so much about it and spin stories out of it is curious. Well, and also who's writing the stories? Like who has the power and the right at this time so long after it happened to tell the stories? Mm. I think that's a really interesting point and not something that I've kind of been able to come to terms with or have a firm answer on yet and I don't think many people do but listen to that podcast I couldn't recommend it more Michelle how was your week this week had a day which was Monday which was the best and worst day of my life wrapped into one and you know this Sarah because at about 10 15 in the morning I got a message from my sister telling me that her baby had arrived. I know lots of the podcast listeners are invested in this because Claire had been pregnant for what uh, felt like 11 fucking years. Have they invested or do they just know about your investment? <laughs> do they? It's just funneled. Like my investment in this baby is just funneled through this like podcast. Nobody has a choice. You all have to be invested with me. So the baby, Amelia, incredibly squishy, incredibly wriggly, looks a lot like a burrito, was born on Monday and she is such a delight and just gorgeous gorgeous and beautiful and I cannot believe how much I love that child already with all of my being. That was the amazing part. So the first five hours after we met Amelia was incredible, best day ever. Unfortunately, Claire got very, very sick very, very quickly and that she started hemorrhaging and lost a third of her blood volume. She lost two liters of blood in the space of about 10, 15 minutes and it was awful. Like one of the worst moments of my life, all having to watch my sister be wheeled into surgery. She went into theater really, really quickly and she's fine now for anyone worrying. She's absolutely, totally fine. She was put on the right medications, obviously went into theater as soon as she possibly could have been. But it's just so scary to think, what if she was sent home early? I mean, her pregnancy was so normal and wonderful and she didn't have a single complication, yet she was diagnosed with HELP syndrome after the baby was delivered. It's just the most rare, unusual, dangerous thing to happen. And yeah, I'm just so grateful for everyone at the Royal Women's Hospital, the nurses, the midwives, the doctors, the surgeons who helped my sister because she is fine, but fuck what a day to go from the high of meeting your very, very first niece to the low of feeling like you may lose your sister or she may need a hysterectomy, which thank God both things were avoided. It's incredible when you go through something that was quite traumatic and it was quite traumatic for all of you because Mm. you were all in the room as this was all happening, the kind of what ifs that you can't escape from in the week Mm. after. Yeah, exactly. And I think as well, because my family are very heavily involved in the health sciences. I mean, Claire's partner is a paramedic. My sister Evelyn is a medicine student who's in her final year. Claire is a midwife. A lot of people in that room and a lot of people going through it knew just how serious the situation was. And In some cases, that might be a positive in that people are educated and they're across these type of syndromes and these type of complications after birth and after labor. But on the other hand, you can know too much and it can stress you out a lot. So, 
yeah, everyone's fine. It's been a week. Claire needs a lot of TLC. I want to be with her baby every minute of every day. She's going to fucking kidnap it. We should. (sighs) We should just hire her. Absolutely. Best week ever. Anyway, we have a dog announcement to make, Zara. We totally do. Or is it a cat announcement? We have a cat announcement to make. (laughs) For those who missed it last week, we put a call out for Doggo of Shameless. We had hundreds and hundreds of submissions. We whittled them down to seven dogs and one rogue cat <laughs> called Cheddar. Fuck you. I'm so angry we about this. We told the people to vote and the people spoke with their like buttons. Cheddar received 3,300 <laughs> votes and is the winner of Dog of Shameless, though the prize is actually only for a dog. So Cheddar, I'll send you some cheese or something. I don't know what cats eat. What should we send Cheddar? I don't know. We should send Cheddar something. I'm going to get like a novelty fuck cats t-shirt made and send that to cheddar no don't do that i'm gonna send, <laughs> do, do cats eat cheese no what do cats eat cat food maybe we could get like purina one all right i'll get you some cat food cheddar although cheddar such a king he probably only eats like like, like olives <laughs> like yellowfin tuna or something and martinis yes. <laughs> and martinis so the dog winner the dog of shameless congratulations to banjo you will be receiving 12 months worth an entire year supply <laughs> Pooch Wash, which is the hardest thing to say, but a beautiful <laughs> product from Bondi Boost. We will send that in the mail. Big consolation to Willow, who was about 50 votes behind. Poor Willow came so close and yet got nothing. So congratulations, Banjo. You are the dog of Shameless. Cheddar, I don't know what to name you. Is it the cat of Shameless for 2020? When We don't have a cat of Shameless. We can have a mascot. We could have, okay, Cheddar is the Shameless 2020 mascot. Banjo is the Dog of Shameless 2020. I mean, it's all pretty confusing, but no one really gives a fuck anyway. I give a fuck. I'm actually kind of mad about the fact that our Dog of Shameless is a cat. <laughs> I actually did like how much it stirred in the Facebook group. Who was it that posted? Was it a girl called Amelia? It was, because now I'll always remember the name Amelia every time I see it. Oh, Amelia true. came in with a very blunt post just to say, I don't think Cheddar should win, to which I said, you and me both, Amelia. Let's <laughs> shout about it from the rooftop. So... Yeah, Cheddar is the winner. I'm not happy about it. If you're not happy about it, come join me. Make a formal complaint against Zara McDonald. And if you want to follow Cheddar, he's at Chilling with Cheddar. (laughs) Fish onto the show today. We're starting with a divorce we had no idea we would ever actually care about. I really care a lot about this. This week, Michael Clark and Kylie Clark announced they are divorcing. They did this through the Australian newspaper, which is an odd decision that we'll get to in a little bit, Zara. But if you are not familiar with the names Michael and Kylie Clark, Michael Clark is 38 years old and he's the former captain of the Australian cricket team. He was a batsman. Not that any of us give a shit about that, really. What we give a shit about is Michael Clark's relationships because <laughs> boy, oh boy, has it been a ride. For the last 10 years, I don't know what it is about Michael Clark's relationships, but they have dominated headlines, particularly his failed engagement to model Lara Bingle, who is now Lara Worthington, of course, married Sam Worthington. But they broke up in 2010 in what I will always regard as the juiciest Australian celebrity breakup story because she flushed. reportedly flushed her, her $200,000 ring down the toilet. That story has to be true. Like, it may not be. It's just a report. No one's confirmed But where does that come from if it's not true? That's the thing. Only two or three people would know about that story. Like, no one just makes that up. The level of detail in that story is too salacious and too specific for it to not be true. Allegedly. I'm going to put another allegedly there because, you know, play it safe. Yeah, and also, you never know. Reports are reports. But this relationship wasn't nearly as controversial at all compared to that Lara Worthington thing. I think people think that Michael Clark has had this string of very controversial relationships because of that one public breakdown. Absolutely. So he did get with Kylie Baldy. She was Kylie Baldy at the time 
shortly after he broke up with Lara Bingle, they reconnected. They had met in high school, went through high school together, were never close, and then reconnected on Twitter. I know. She's... Who meets on Twitter? Well, it was 2010. Who? Not me. <laughs> Who ever meets on Twitter? That's just the most random social media platform to reconnect on. You know what? If we've got a listener out there who's listening, who's met the love of their life through Twitter, <laughs> can you please come into the Facebook group Shameless Podcast community and tell us? I love it. Anyway, so they got married in 2012 and they were reportedly very happy until recently. Yes. So in a statement to The Australian last week, they told the paper they'd been living apart for five months and The Australian reports that the pair remain on good terms, continue going to the same gym together in Rose Bay and still co-parent their child, Kelsey Lee. You did touch on this just earlier, but I I think my first thought beyond, oh, I didn't think that was going to happen. I actually know my other thought was, I really care about this and I don't know why, (laughs) was interesting that they went to The Australian for this. The Australian is hardly known as a paper that's going to break like salacious relationship breakdowns from Australian celebrities. Isn't it odd? The Australian breaking a celebrity news story. It just feels like these stories normally go to the Daily Telegraph, perhaps. I don't really know of any other newspapers that concern themselves with these kinds of headlines. The Daily Mail, maybe? I am interested in why we possibly care about this. I don't think Michael Clark has consumed any of my thinking or feeling <laughs> kind of ever. And yet when this story broke and I put it in our Slack window, you were like, why the fuck do I care too? I don't think I've given this couple a second thought or a first thought ever in my life either. And I wonder, what is it about some couples that make you care when they break up? This could be so left of field and like this be good. way too overthought. Here we go. Way overthought? <laughs> way too... Overthunk. Overthunk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is so overthunk. Anyway, is it because you categorize, like you subconsciously categorize couples into like stable and eh, maybe they won't last. Yeah. And so when the stable ones who you kind of don't really think about too much, but you always consider to not be a problem couple, I say that with air quotes, that when they do break up, it's more of an element of surprise. Well, I think so. I don't know if this is shooting from the hip, but probably is. That's generally what I tend to do. <laughs> I was going to say there's a whole lot of shooting from the hip here. <laughs> I look at celebrity couples who met before they were famous and knew each other before they were famous and see it as being more stable than perhaps the couples who met after fame and fortune came. I'm not saying you can't have a happy, healthy relationship if you meet after the fame comes, but I do think it adds a certain layer that isn't always necessarily congruent with stability. Well, totally. I think if you know someone before they get famous, you know their fundamentals and their foundations, and it's kind of easier to build from that rather than anything else. Another element element as to why I think we all found this story so interesting is all the headlines ran with the $40 million figure in that it wasn't just Michael and Kylie Clark's divorce. It was inside Michael and Kylie Clark's $40 million divorce. And this will sound so naive and perhaps a little immature, but I feel like at 25, I just have no understanding of how much money is out there in the world. $40 million. I know that people have like hundreds of billions. I know that there are some people with ridiculous exorbitant amounts of money. But to think that someone like Michael and Kylie Clark, who come across as quite typical and regular on Instagram, have $40 million to their names blows my mind. To see the amounts put and the values put on the properties that they live in is just mind-blowing. The fact they have a $7 million Bondi apartment just makes my yeah, eyes water. The little home. No, I don't think that's immature at all. I think that's a very natural response to seeing that figure of money. I don't think anyone can comprehend sort of... Imagine or, having $40 million. What the fuck would you do with it? I, I don't, don't know. know. I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> the other headlines that have come out that have really intrigued me have also kind of made me feel quite tired about the media because I think... 
even though we're a part of it, I full disclaimer, <laughs> I think we're the first ones to tire of the media too and admit that. But just how they're pulling apart old quotes of Kylie and Michael Clark and going back through Michael Clark's memoir saying, are these the signs that we missed? And I know it's so, so typical of how the media responds to any breakup because it's like the breakup announcement, maybe the first pap photos, and then a few days later it's let's let's unpack everything we've ever said about each other and mm. work out where it might have gone wrong mm. to tell a story that kind of isn't even true. But some of the headlines here, like, for example, one of them in the Daily Telegraph, Clark tells of relationship fears spawned by parents' divorce. So they went back through his memoir, found comments about divorce from his parents and said was he always doomed for his relationships to fail because he was so fearful of broken marriages. Yeah, well, some of the headlines insinuated that the marriage was doomed because the first time Michael Clark approached Kylie and asked for her number, she said no. And that one exchange was extrapolated to say that from the very beginning, things were never going to end happily, which is the most batshit crazy argument. It's just annoying. Like, it's so psychoanalytical and so unnecessary and also completely unhelpful. Well, it's just clickbait. It's just done for clicks, right? I know clickbait is nothing more than that. I think the other... um, Articles that are really kind of pissing me off at this time are the ones that are putting his PA's face and name around the articles, even though she's getting married in six weeks and clearly through the statement from Kylie and Michael has nothing to do with the relationship breakdown, but putting a young female and sort of demonizing her, but very, very subtly. I don't, I really don't like the Daily Mail did that. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. Well, the inference there is a pretty gross one in that Michael Clark's PA is quite young and quite attractive and therefore something must be going on according to Daily Mail reporters. Well, the headline is stirred, not shaken. I don't even know what the fuck that means. (laughs) Michael Clark's glamorous PA drops him off at a Bondi pub for drinks with high-profile footy and media identities. That's not a story. The only story is the fact that you caught them in a car together and people travel in cars together all the time. Especially with their personal assistants. I know, it's ridiculous. One thing I do want to congratulate Kylie Clark on is the fact that for the one time that perhaps got her walking from one house into her car, she very deliberately chose to wear a top that had a huge lifestyled, and that's the name of her brand, a huge lifestyled logo right in the center. Cannot be mistaken, cannot be missed. It's right there in the middle of every photo, the name of her company. So, I mean, make lemonade out of lemons. (laughs) Thank you, next bitch. And now it is time for the quick and dirty. As always, we bring you the top-ish five stories from the <laughs> roughly and tumbly of the celebrity news cycle. Up to interpretation. Michelle Elizabeth Andrews, my thin-footed friend. <laughs> what have you got for me? My feet are so thin that I need to wear basically orthotics in everything. You were that dork at, at primary school who had to wear orthotics in their runners and, and school shoes. Whenever I went to a podiatrist and he said I have the highest arches of anyone who's ever seen, which apparently is something that people want but is that hot i think uh, can feet be hot maybe i'm the kind of person that a foot fetish lover would be into okay give this me went real story. weird real quick <laughs> my first story miley cyrus and liam hemsworth attend same pre-oscars bash over a week after finalizing their divorce that is from people magazine what did you make of this i don't really care <gasps> that much and forgive me not not that like of course they're going to be in the same room and of course they're probably not going to speak to each other in that room really but what do you mean of course they're going to be in the same room it's not like they all have to go to the same oscars parties there are dozens yeah but the vanity was it the vanity fair one yes okay well everyone goes with vanity fair to the oscars in some capacity yeah but i don't know i just feel like 
if your ex-husband or your ex-wife, where their divorce is being finalized next week, this is incredibly fresh, you might just miss it. I mean, Miley went along in a white singlet and a pair of jeans. It wasn't as if she was all dolled up for the occasion and swanned in, ready to have a great time. It was quite a casual affair. It's bigger than missing like a friend's birthday because you've just broken up and you don't want to be in the same room. This is like an event where they need to be seen at for their careers. Mm. So I think you would be willing to stand in the same room with hundreds of other people on the assumption that maybe you might not even come into contact with each other in a room that big and that full. Well, they didn't. And I do want to talk about the fact that Miley Cyrus Cyrus is still with Cody Simpson. Oh, what the fuck? Are you surprised by that? They're still posting like loved up photos together, still very, very happy and in love. She must have a massive thing for Australian guys. I didn't know they were still together. I just thought that was a masked singer thing. Good on them, I guess. What else have you got? My second story, Natalie Portman responds to Rose McGowan's Oscar dress criticism. That is from the BBC. What a gear change there. I know. This story was really interesting. So Natalie Portman... Portman made headlines when she entered the Oscars uh, red carpet wearing this kind of, it was kind of a cape. Would you say cape? Yeah, I didn't love it. Is that harsh? No, I didn't love it either. It was quite medieval. It was quite medieval. That's not a bad um, analysis from you. But it had the names of directors that she believed were snubbed from Oscar nominations in like sewn into the lining of the cape. Embroidered, right? Yeah, what did I say? Sewn into the lining, which I mean, I think it's embroidered. Well, like I'm no fashion designer, but like I tried my best. Anyway, so she did that. She was celebrated. The headlines came very, very quickly the minute people realized and said, oh, how cool is Natalie Portman's look? In a Facebook post, Rose McGowan came out and called this the kind of protest that gets rave reviews from the mainstream media, but was more like an actress acting the part of someone who cares, as so many of them do, she said. She went on and she said, I find Portman's type of activism deeply offensive to those of us who actually do the work. How do you feel about that? I mean, it's hard because Rose McGowan is a survivor of sexual assault and I don't ever want to tell a survivor to not be upset that she doesn't feel like she's been supported by the women in her industry. And who's to know, maybe there's a lot that's happened behind the scenes, a lot of detail and a lot of nuance that we're not across because it hasn't been made public from the outside perspective though it does look unfairly harsh I agree with that and I kind of wish that she I mean Rose McGowan doesn't mince her words so this is quite typical of her that she will come out all guns blazing and she will be very unapologetic in her criticism it's just not my style and I don't think it's ever fair to be so harsh and so critical of a woman who who did do something symbolic and it is something that's positive yes it might not be on the front line fighting the good fight of violence against women and it might not be doing everything Rose McGowan has done but it's still doing good and I don't think we can criticize that No, I agree with that. I think not all activism is made equal and I think this is the mistake we keep coming back to or keep making is assuming that that every act of activism has to be perfect or of the same sort of theme or method. Or magnitude. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's just a very simple thing. She knew she was going to be on the red carpet. There's there's cameras galore. There's media galore across the world there. Like if you're going to make a statement, do it there. It's not a bad statement to make. There was a bit of commentary on Twitter as well where the 
sentiment was a bit like, and I'm going to paraphrase, but it was kind of like my favorite type of activism is Dior activism. So she's wearing like this Dior cape, but she's trying to speak about women. And I was a little bit annoyed by that too, because no one's saying that Natalie Portman is literally saving the world by putting this on her Mm. cape or having it, sorry, having it embroidered (laughs) on her cape. No one is saying that. They're just saying that it's an interesting move and it kind of spotlights a conversation very, very briefly. The other thing that I found interesting was that Natalie Portman did respond to Rose's Mm. comments and she said, I agree with Miss McGowan that it is inaccurate to call me brave for wearing a garment with women's names on it. Brave is a term I more strongly associate with actions like those of the women who have been testifying against Harvey Weinstein the last few weeks under incredible pressure. This is where the confusion in the story has come from because Rose McGowan came out very sort of um, almost aggressively, I would say aggressively, but within her rights to, to say she's not brave and she's not. And Natalie Portman agrees with that. So I think maybe the criticism should have been leveled at media outlets who decided to dub this as brave. Yeah. Well, Natalie Portman never used that to describe herself. So it's kind of unfair to push back against that when she never ascribed that label at all. Well, totally. And the one thing that I wanted to finish on with this story is that there was a really interesting op-ed in The Guardian by Ryan Gilby this week. And the headline was, Rose McGowan's attack on Natalie Portman was a welcome cuff in an age of cuddles. And the subheading was, McGowan's anger is vital and uncomfortable to hear in an age where Me Too is become blunted by celebrity endorsements, we need her. And I kind of think that all of these things can be true at once. Like Rose McGowan's anger is important. I think she's a huge force for activism in the Hollywood industry, also for survivors of sexual assault. And I think just because the way she campaigns is uncomfortable to people doesn't mean we shouldn't hear it and sort of be receptive to it. I agree. My third story, Rihanna's Savage and Fenty lingerie line accused of deceptive marketing tactics. That is from CNN, Zara. I'm not across this story. You've snuck its way. (laughs) I've thrown it in. You snuck it into today's Quick and Dirty. Can you please tell me why you care? Yeah, so I think it's one of the first times, first and foremost, that I've heard anything negative or like completely negative about anything that Rihanna's really put her name to. She's kind of been able to evade a lot of controversy with the clothing lines and the makeup lines that she's put out. But what is very interesting about this? So some of you might know that Rihanna launched her lingerie line Savage. And do you remember that show that she did that was kind of an answer to Victoria's Secret, like a 2019 answer to Victoria's Secret that was sold to Amazon? Everyone described it as the final nail in Victoria's Secret's coffin. Exactly. So this is the lingerie we're talking about. So what happened was the non-for-profit organization Truth in Advertising has filed complaints about Savage and Fenty after they received reports from customers customers who said they purchased apparel from the company's Mm. website and then unwittingly signed up for a membership that cost 50 bucks per month. So the business Uh. model that this lingerie company is operating off is this really strange thing that I'm seeing popping up, which is a membership. Oh, it's like a subscription package. Yes. So what you do is you pay 50 bucks a month and it means you're a VIP. But what customers are saying with Savage is they kind of click on a cheaper price. So there's two pricing options, the normal pricing option and the VIP pricing option when you go to put something in your cart. They click on the cheaper one. And when it comes up, they say, okay, cool, sign up to our VIP package. It costs an extra 50 bucks. So they do. And then they're signed up into this ongoing monthly subscription that's not cheap. And it's impossible, they say, to unsubscribe from. Those are the worst. You can't. They say you cannot cancel online, that you have to call and all of their calls are hardly being answered. Oh. And, oh. Which is so annoying, right? It's so That's happened to me before I've been signed up for things. 
and getting out of it. So many people don't get out of it simply because it's too difficult to try and get yeah, out of it. Yeah, and 50 bucks a month is huge. I think the era of celebrity clothing membership is interesting to me. It's not the first person to do it. Kate Hudson has a brand called Fabletics. Have you heard of Fabletics? Yes, I have. And I remember there being a bit of controversy around this For as well. For exactly the same reason. It encourages customers to become members, which does unlock, again, cheaper prices and exclusive products. And they are able to curate so much more data about their customer base because they're signing up as members and they're making so much money from it. I feel a little weird about it though. It's kind of a shitty way to make money. Like I understand some subscriptions are amazing, but you've got to give people the ability to opt out when they want to opt out and don't try and fool them into signing up for something they don't know they're even signing up for. Amen, sister. My fourth story. This is a devastating one, Zara. Former Love Island presenter Caroline Flack found dead at flat aged 40. That is from The Independent and as a Love Island fan, I am kind of devastated. I've watched this woman host five seasons of this show and Caroline Flack has had a very turbulent and tumultuous 12 months. She was charged with assault on her partner and she wasn't allowed to speak to him for two months as is the court process and that they are kept very much separate until the court case can come around. And in that time, in the interim between the incident and the court case, Caroline Flack has reportedly taken her own life. Yeah, it is incredibly sad it's what the third person from love island to yes. die after the series to, die by suicide yeah, well exactly and i think it's a lot of i think it's quite shocking for a lot of people who are, are huge fans of the show i think the other thing that a lot of people are talking about in our facebook group in particular is this idea that her family have called it death by media and that social media in particular was particularly harsh in the wake of these allegations and her stepping down from the show And I think a lot will come out in the next couple of weeks with regards to conversations about how we deal with people who are accused of things in the public eye and how we kind of troll them Mm. publicly on social media and what that actually means. It's messy, isn't it? It's really hard. It's messy and it really troubles the legacy of Love Island for years to come. I mean, it's really not quite clear whether or not ITV gave Caroline Flack the correct amount of support. They've definitely been accused in the past of not doing that for contestants like Sophie and like Mike, who did take their lives as well. So there's going to be a lot that comes out about this. And if it does emerge that ITV just totally abandoned their star and their host, even in the wake of these abuse allegations, then that will be damning and there needs to be some kind of change. We obviously cannot be having so many people have interaction and touch points with the one franchise and then ending their lives in the months and years afterwards. So yeah, a lawyer from the family did confirm the terrible awful news and it's sad for everyone involved there's no real silver lining in this story it's just an awful awful story absolutely and if you or anyone you know needs help call lifeline now on 131114 my fifth and final story for today's quick and dirty i promise we have a bit of a lighter one to finish on zara the one where jennifer aniston gets grilled by sandra bullock that is from interview magazine please give me all your thoughts what did you think about this sandra bullock piece of interviewing jennifer aniston these pieces get so much hype they get so much hype because it's like oh my goodness it's jennifer aniston and it's sandra bullock mm. and it's them having a candid conversation i despise articles <laughs> like this and i know i mean it's probably you despise them it's probably a bit of an overstatement but i don't like 
like them. I hate the celebrity to celebrity interview. You get fucking nothing from it. It mm-hmm. is waffly and meaningless. There is no depth to it. And these are the kinds of interviews that are making headlines now. I couldn't help but think when I read this, and please do go read it on Interview Magazine if you are interested. It should have been an audio clip or a video to read this waffly, super casual conversation transcribed into text just did not translate well at all. It should have been a video. It should have existed on YouTube. I got zero information from it whatsoever. Yeah, the photos from the piece, though, just of Jen Aniston mm-hmm. were incredible. They were pretty striking. I don't know. I love Jennifer Aniston's second win. I've always loved Jennifer Aniston. But it reminded me a lot of when we spoke on the podcast a couple of weeks ago when I went back through the archives and I found like this 2006 piece from Vanity Fair where Jennifer Aniston just posed in like... Naked. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I guess let's not beat around the bush. And it reminded me of this. It's like she's having her second win. She's doing another real sexy photo shoot. Yes, these images of Jen Aniston need to be seen to be believed. I hate the interview. I bloody love the photo. She's just ridiculously hot. Yeah, she's amazing. Is that all you've got for me? That's all I've got. Coming up after the break, doctors as influencers and then a conversation about the meme of Karen. But first a word from our sponsor. Can doctors be influencers too? That's the question posed by Eve Simmons in the Daily Mail this week after she wrote an article titled How NHS Doctors Are Making Thousands of Pounds by Plugging BMWs, Deodorant, Sun Cream and Snacks on Instagram. In the piece, she drew attention to a handful of doctors who are making lucrative coin from their sizable Instagram followings, spruiking red meat, deodorants, supplements, ice cream and other things on their accounts. So it poses the question, is this the one profession that should be banned from making money off Instagram? Zara, what did you make of the piece? It was a really interesting one and something I hadn't really come into contact with until now. The piece was pretty UK-centric, but I think it's pretty universal in terms of the questions that are raised in the article about who can make money off their Instagram. For a tiny bit of context for people who haven't read the piece and also might consider the fact that it was written for the Daily Mail as thinking that the piece doesn't matter or it's made up in its entirety. Should be discounted or something. Exactly. I think in the same way that not all journalism is made equal, not all Daily Mail stories are made equal either. Eve Simmons has written quite a few journalistic pieces for the for the Daily Mail that aren't just kind of relying on those real clickbaity pap photos. It is an actual investigation that could probably sit on any other news website. The only difference between this piece is I thought it was quite editorialised throughout it, which is quite strange to read. It you was can- like drippings of Daily Mail, just through it, like hot doctor or describing what someone looks like when it's not really necessary. Just little details that are a little bit salacious and gossipy which, that aren't entirely relevant. Which you wouldn't probably get in any other paper, <laughs> no. but the rest of it you would. Yes. The crux of the story is that the Health and Care Professions Council, which polices practicing healthcare professionals, announced a probe into the social media contact of practitioners. So the story details a whole group of medical professionals who are, as we said, spruiking red meat, deodorants, supplements, ice cream on their Instagram for context to the posts are always fully disclosed as paid advertising. So I'm going to give one quote that illustrates why some doctors and why some healthcare professionals are so angry about this kind of content and so angry about doctors in particular becoming Instagram influencers. Dr. Gary Marlowe said that medics who accept cash to push products or health information are guilty of, quote, extremely dodgy practice. The information we give to patients must not be propelled by personal financial biases. One of the most important things about being a doctor is that you are 
trusted. If that is destroyed, it affects the entirety of the doctor-patient relationship. They are using their medical authority and turning it into currency. Now, Zara, at the heart of this debate as to whether or not doctors should be influencers were these red meat Instagram posts. So what happened was a whole group of doctors, one called Dr. Joshua Woolridge, but also Dr. Alex George, who was a Love Island contestant a few years ago, dietitians Priya Two and Nicola Ludlam Rain, all posted these red meat Instagram posts on the same day, were reportedly paid in the region of £4,000 each, about what, $8,000? Yeah, a heap of money. I just double pounced to dollars. Is yeah, that so the thing? <laughs> Not technically, I don't think, but I'm sure it like roughly works out. Sure. We're all paid to post something along the lines of this. This is what Dr. Woolrich posted. Hashtag ad. Red meat has been the victim of an awful lot of fear mongering lately. Today is known as Blue Monday, commonly claimed to be the worst Monday of the year. It's a good opportunity to remember how much a source of helpful nutrients red meat can be. Now, this garnered a heap of backlash from some doctors on Twitter, but also just from the general public who said that doctors and dietitians should not be giving health advice and diet advice when it is paid for by a sponsor. Well, exactly. And I can kind of understand some of the back and forth about this red meat uh, posting in particular comes back to this idea, well, are they actually doing any harm? Like in this instance, are they actually doing any harm? And I find that line of thought kind of reductive because it's not about the harm they're doing in this post. It's the harm that they can do if this kind of behavior continues. Mm. I think for me, it kind of spurs the conversation into what is responsible advertising and to what extent is editorial affected by it. And it seems weird to call <laughs> doctor's advice editorial, but I guess coming from a like a journalist background, it is when you sanitize certain advice and certain content from sponsored input. I think we definitely have skin in this game like every other media outlet or truthfully anyone else who exists on Instagram who wants to sort of have some sort of content be trusted. I think it comes back to trust, Mm. but also need to be paid for that work because they don't charge their followers. And I think for us, we have to explain to every single advertiser that ever comes on board that they have absolutely no say in what we cover and how we cover it Mm. because this is sacred to us. No one listens to an episode of Shameless before it goes live apart from you and me and Annabelle. And I think that's pretty standard code of ethics from a journalistic standpoint. I think it gets really interesting, though, when influence looks different now and when doctors are now on Instagram and they are influencers and medical professionals and those two things overlap. Like instead of getting our content, and we mostly used to get our content from what, like newspapers Mm. and that's about it, where there were kind of more standard codes of ethics that doesn't really exist at all. And I think things get far murkier and I think it can spiral us if we're not careful. Like, yes, a doctor recommending red meat won't kill us. But like, what about, Mish, a finance podcast making money from big banks and giving advice on where to house your money or a nutritionist podcast taking money from supplement brands and telling you how to best pad out your diet? It's really murky. And I think actually the doctor angle is the murkiest of all of them. Yes, it's still concerning when a financial expert is being paid to give very specific tailored financial advice based on who's lining their bank account. However, doctors are a different kettle of fish because according to the World Economic Forum, I did some research on this, a study across 35 countries found that doctors are undoubtedly the most respected and trusted people in society. Like I hate to talk about society as if it's a hierarchy, but if it is a hierarchy, which I tend to believe that it is, that's just the nature of things we are 
fallible and unfortunately we rank people based on their professions. Well, more than that, we live in a Western capitalist world where it's kind of based off that kind of thing. Exactly. Let's no one talk about where journalists are ranked on this list, by the (laughs) way. Pretty far down. But doctors sit at the top of the tree. Doctors are the most trusted people in society across 35 countries. They were followed in second place by lawyers, engineers in third place, and high school principals in fourth place. These Doctors are trusted so much more than the average person. And I think that level of trust needs to be really analysed here. So that's and that's exactly the thing I can't stop thinking about is that, yes, this post in question that spurred this entire conversation was about red meat. And that might not be dangerous yet, but it doesn't mean it doesn't matter. I think it is completely about trust. And if we start eroding trust now, no one's going to know where to look or who to trust for information. Mm. I think we live in an increasingly distrustful society. Nobody actually does know where to trust. And if the people who you say are voted the most trustworthy are starting to buy in to this kind of culture, then I think we might find ourselves in a world of trouble. Yeah, some little disclaimers though. He did put hashtag ad before the content even began. It was at the very, very beginning of his caption hashtag ad. So Dr. Joshua Woolridge did abide by the guidelines that stipulate how he is supposed to post sponsored content. On top of that, He has been open about doing influencer content and doing sponsored content for a long time. I think people found the red meat post so jarring because it instructs people to put something into their bodies. His other posts have been about quite non-offensive, non-controversial things. But when you get into red meat territory, it not only brings in the vegetarianism, veganism argument, but also the environmentalism argument. And then on top of that, the research that indicates that very high levels of red meat consumption across a week can increase your risk of things like bowel cancer. Now, I know that might seem tedious, but as a doctor, there probably did need to be a disclaimer from the start indicating how much red meat you should be eating according to the NHS guidelines or even the guidelines in Australia, which say up to 455 grams of weekly red meat intake. That's about 70 grams of red meat per day. And that wasn't put in the post when he first put it up. To his credit, he did edit the caption and add that in after different researchers and medics came to him and said, this is missing. It needs to be in there. It's important health information. But all of that said, Zara, I still sit on the side that says I want doctors to be on Instagram. This has been such a ridiculous pseudoscientific space for so long where anti-vaxxers have been allowed to run riot, where wellness influencers have been able to dictate to people what they should and shouldn't be putting into their bodies. If doctors are going to make money on the platform, but at least be giving out scientific, robust advice, then so be it. I think this is by far the lesser of two evils. I don't think it's evil at all. I think we need more doctors and physicians on the platform to push back against pseudoscientific rhetoric. Yeah, well, I agree with that. I think I want these people on Instagram. I want them on the platform. And I think that's why the editorializing of the piece really annoyed me. For example, there were some lines in the story from Eve Simmons that said that when contacted by the newspaper, Dr. Joshua Walrich claimed his Instagram profile has always been used to engage in open and robust dialogue with my audience and to challenge health myths. But many of his posts, Eve wrote, taken in changing rooms at work, in lifts or on public transport, and sometimes he wears his medical scrubs. I really don't find this relevant at all because I think we can and need to see doctors and health professionals as human. I think that's a great part about Instagram breaking down these walls. And the more we say, 
way to health professionals or medical professionals, we can't see you as human. You can't be on this platform. They're not going to feel invited or welcome to be there. Back to your point a little bit when you said earlier, he did put hashtag ad at the start and he is kind of following as many guidelines as he should. It is another kind of moot point to me because just because he is doesn't mean that everybody else after him will. I think for me, it's a precedent thing. And we could find ourselves in territory where a whole bunch of medical professionals are doing this and they aren't doing it in the same way that he is or a few of the others are. And it just gets more dangerous and more dangerous. I don't know. I think the fact we're even having this conversation, the fact that it is in a major publication and that different governing bodies have been pulled into it mean we probably can avoid it. I think this conversation is important. It's why we're having it here. I think even though I do sit on the side of the fence that says doctors can absolutely be on Instagram and take money for sponsored content if they need to and if it's the right fit, I do think it's right to have this conversation to ensure that in the future people don't cross the line. I think a line probably has been crossed with the red meat post. Well, that's the thing. I think just because the, what my point was is just because the, he followed the you know sponsored guidelines from what would be in Australia the ACCC doesn't mean that it's going to be a correct post in its entirety. I think Anjali Marto, who's a qualified doctor and consultant dermatologist, had a great quote in the piece and she said, just because a post doesn't cause harm doesn't mean it's fine. And I think that really hits home to me it's a really hard one because if you want doctors and medical professionals on instagram growing their followings and they can't make money off that what's the incentive for them being there but i think the idea is what maybe growing a profile them going out on their own i know that's probably a very simplistic way to look at it but is growing a profile and being a trusted voice enough reason for them to be on the platform beyond making extra coin from it well probably not i mean let's look at we've been looking at dr joshua woolrich so i'll keep looking at him just for the purpose of this segment but he's got almost a quarter of a million followers I understand that a lot of people think Instagram is not much work or that social media is not much work, but it is. Building a following to that size is a heap of work. There's a reason social media managers exist in brands now. This type of stuff is really important. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of time. If we want doctors on Instagram when they already have such demanding jobs, how can we do that? He needs to find some type of financial reward, in my opinion, to make it worthwhile. And the stuff that this doctor has done with his profile far outweighs a red meat post. He has pushed back so wholeheartedly on anti-vaxxers. He has a saved story on his Instagram account, which please go and look at him. His handle is at Dr. Joshua Woolridge. He has a full story saved about vaccines debunking myths. He has a full story about weight stigma and pushing back against the claims that weight and health are inextricably linked. He so wholeheartedly pushes the sun safety and wear SBF message every single day. I'm a little bit annoyed that this is now going to be on his back, that he did one I disagree sponsored- that it will. I really disagree that it will. I think that we're assuming that his reputation is ruined because of one conversation. This was a piece that focused on quite a few different doctors saying, is this kind of conduct mm. okay? And all it's doing is encouraging higher bodies to come in and say, all right, let's put some measures around this. Dr. Joshua Woolrich will be fine. This is not going to taint his reputation. I get it. But having your photo and your name published in a national newspaper with the headline exposed does do reputational damage. I understand that they've talked about a lot of people, but in the newspaper that was printed, it was his name and his face that was bigger than anyone else's. And I'm just a little bit annoyed that someone who does a lot of good is now being slammed, so wholeheartedly slammed by this newspaper 
for doing a red meat Instagram post. It just seems hyperbolic and it seems totally disproportionate with the crime. Yeah, and I think that's something that we come back to in the episode all the time is that everything seems disproportionate to the crime. I do think that the Daily Mail did editorialise this story in general, but I think it needed to exist. I think Dr. Joshua Woolrich will be fine because people like you and I had never heard of him before and probably will go and follow him. I do follow him. (laughs) See, for all the good that he does. And yes, I think these people are doing more good, more good by so far, but I think it's a worthy conversation to have. On Saturday, journalist Julia Baird published a piece in the Sydney Morning Herald titled Thanks for Noticing Us Gen Z, but we need to talk about Karen. Karen, of course, referring to the heavily memed kind of white woman who asks for the manager. Tweeting the article, Baird argued, So there's a new name for Gen Xs, Karen. I get the dear get entitlement and privilege, but isn't it a bit weird to parody a generation by mocking women who speak up? And given men often complain, more where is Ken? The article hit a mood, but not a good one. Most argued Baird had misunderstood what Karen actually is and stands for and where the concept actually came from. So Mish, let's start here. Can you explain what the Karen meme actually is and how you consider this story? I thought you'd never ask. Mm. I started seeing the Karen meme pop up last year probably. I guess you're the same but this can be dated back to about 2015. As with all memes, it's incredibly difficult to pinpoint where this came from. It's almost embarrassing to try and explain a meme via a podcast. Yes. Like I challenge anyone to try and do this. (laughs) So it started on Reddit from what most people can tell that there was a very disgruntled man whose ex-wife Karen took the kids and he wrote this viral Reddit thread about all the things that Karen did to him. That thread was picked up by another user who made the idea of Karen a meme and the subreddit was called Fuck You Karen and it just became this huge space for people to all join in on this stereotypical character. Now if you haven't seen the Karen meme, it mostly hinges on a really specific haircut. The haircut is at the very, very heart of this piece and it's what the internet has dubbed the can I speak to the manager haircut. Visual if you can for a sec, an asymmetrical bob that is peroxide blonde where the hair comes down further on one side and has a bit of a sweeping fringe at the You're same time. You're not doing terribly at this. Thank I'm you. quite impressed. Thank you. One of the central jokes is, of course, the took the kids comment that she is the divorcee who is incredibly difficult and frustrating and petty. The other central parts of this Karen personality are that she's nosy and entitled. She's probably an anti-vaxxer. She probably has really annoying, cliched quotes written all around her home. She probably votes for Trump. And most importantly, the central theme to this is she's the person who would see a gathering of black people at the park and immediately call the police. Underneath all the hair and all the other details about what makes a Karen a Karen is that she's racist. Yes, and And I think that's the point that a lot of people came back to bed on straight away on Twitter and said, okay, there's a huge part of Karen that you're missing. For example, one of Julia Baird's first lines is, this apparently is what Gen Z has branded Gen X, the Karen generation, and it means the kind of woman who calls the cops on neighbours. Now as a child of the 70s, I'd like to say, hey, thanks for noticing us. Reading that line on the backdrop of how you've already sort of painted the picture of Karen kind of helps you understand how Baird has flattened what Karen means and attributed it to a generation rather than a type of person. 
There was a really great reply on the thread on Twitter from writer Joan Westenberg, who said, honestly, this fails to understand the character of Karen. Karen isn't a woman who speaks up and complains. Karen is a woman who weaponizes the long and academically noted and documented power of white femininity and white women's tears as a tool of oppression. Absolutely. Now you touched on Twitter there, and I think this is really important. If you're wondering why we're discussing this, this story went viral. It was the number one trending story on Twitter on Saturday. Exactly. So it was number one. There were more than 60,000 tweets about this story. It went viral for basically all the wrong reasons. Let me just say, there are some Karens in my life who I love very, very dearly, and it would suck to have your name go viral for a character and an idea like this. Oh, totally. I, but <laughs> it would really, really suck. But- Imagine if it was Zara's or Michelle. I reckon it would actually upset me if I saw Michelle go viral as being a racist, annoying, totally. thoroughly unlikable personality. I feel sorry for people, especially the women in my life named Karen, who I love very dearly. I, I just want to say that. I, I And that's a good point to make, but I also think it's gone beyond the name now like it's so much more than the name you could be called tina and have this as well i do really find it interesting that julia bed did seem to so totally miss the central theme of what makes karen karen in that she thought it was a commentary on two things gender and generational divides when it's not really that at all and i understand that a core part of her piece was asking, well, where's Ken? Where's Ken? Why is there no male equivalent? She brought up the idea that there's no male equivalent to the word slut or whore and that Karen is a similar theme. I really wholeheartedly disagree with that. And I love Julia Baird as a writer. I think she's so intelligent and so great. And I love the majority of her stories. But this meme has gone so well and it has been so prolific and so proliferated across the internet because it speaks to this kind of person so well. There isn't a Ken because it's not a commentary on gender. It's a comment on a really specific kind of personality. And we don't need to make this about gender because I don't think it is about gender at all. Well, that's exactly the thing I keep coming back to and a lot of the Twitter commentary kept coming back to is that gender is important in almost every context, but I don't think it's relevant in this one. I think if we're going back to Joan Westenberg's tweet, which was it's about the power of white femininity and white women's tears as a tool of oppression, it reminded me a lot of Ruby Hamad's story that went really, I know we're using the term viral very flippantly. Viral. <laughs> but went really viral for The Guardian, which was how white women use strategic tears to silence women of colour. And I think gender, the fact that the character of a white woman is very, very important in order to tell this story. Absolutely. And the idea of, Julia Baird that Karen stands up to authority also doesn't stack up to me because the can I speak to the manager trope is of the woman who has the power, who has the children, is older, is more wealthy, stands at a higher position in inverted commas, in society, who is undermining the retail worker, the hospitality worker, what have you, who is probably earning $15 an hour and going, can I speak to your manager? You're incompetent. I need to go above you. That's not challenging authority. That's rising to it and weaponizing it. Well, it's weaponizing it for sure. And it's also considering the people that are in your orbit as lower than you. One anecdote that I think is really important to illustrate the fuck Karen or fuck you Karen movement particularly in Australia, is do you remember, Zara, when 
a white woman tried to tear down an indigenous flag. I think it was late last year or early this year. And a video of that went bananas online, as did the hashtag too strong for you, Karen. This is very, very much a conversation about white women being challenged by people of color and needing to push against them. No, totally. And I think this is why some people were so confused when they saw this piece, because it seemed to sort of flatten the Karen character. The other point that I did want to bring into this is that memes do kind of flatten things. And I know that memes, by definition, have layers and a bit of nuance, but generally they do flatten things. And that I think that a whole lot of people's exposure to this Karen meme may only be that really one-dimensional, can I speak to the manager, very kind of annoying woman. And so I can kind of understand how the narrative of Karen has sort of taken some steps away from its origins for some people, that people's exposure to it may only be that end point, which is that very flat meme. But I do think the more we can remind people of its origins and where it actually was born from, the better off we all are. Back to the gender point for a second, Osman Faruqi had a really great point, which was, I'm sure there's a valid point to be made about how much more eager we are to pile on women than men, but this isn't it. Calling the manager isn't standing up to authority. It's aligning yourself to authority to attack those in a weaker position, which kind of combines the two things that we were just talking about. I also found it curious to kind of conflate the concept of Karen with social activism, which I found she did. Baird wrote, men assert women whinge. Men point out problems. Women are being Karens. Florence Nightingale was a Karen, privileged, annoying, 21 content with the status quo and insisted on seeing the manager. For her, government ministers flooding them with complaints in the form of pie charts and entire new models of military medical systems. And I just, I did, I did kind of read this line and I was like, I don't know how we got here entirely. Like standing up to a retail worker is similar to standing up to the government. Yes. It's just not a thing. I do, I, and I know, I, yeah. One thing that I do really like that I do want to get in to this segment is that I do really appreciate Julia Baird platforming some of these arguments against her story on her Twitter feed. She was sharing some of these quotes that you've just read out Zara and saying that's a really great point I'm going to come back to this and I think that's really important that needs to be at the heart of this conversation also because so many writers put this type of content out or put opinion pieces out that might be half-baked and then they just ignore the backlash and bury their heads in the sand and I very much admire Julia Baird for taking the harder option, which is to acknowledge that people don't like her story and to say, I'm going to come back on this. This is a really good point. I'm going to take some time out before I do. And I know it's only been a couple of days, but I think assuming the commentary has been as I have seen it, and I have deep dived quite a lot on this, but assuming Baird hasn't been trolled like incessantly in her DMs about this, I think this is how productive conversations can happen on Twitter and on social media, because I think a lot of progress can be made through conversations like this. I think everybody definitely gets smarter, particularly when the journalist in question is happy to take on that feedback and actually readdress the problem in the coming days. I think that's all we've got time for. I think it is too. Thank you so much for listening as always. And thank you so much for supporting us with our relaunch of Love Etc. Season 2. You guys were so kind and we were so, so happy to see so many of you listen. Yeah, we can't wait to share future episodes. And Zara, I can't wait to share this Thursday's In Conversation episode. I'm so excited for people to find out who's on it. I know. This is something that people have bugged us about for a good two years now. So we finally pulled through with the goods and and got it done for you. We got it done. So just you wait. Thursday morning, the episode drops at five. I don't expect for you to wake up that early, but this Thursday... 
we have a very special in conversation episode until then please come and join our facebook group we are at shameless podcast community on facebook there are 36,000 women and a handful of men in there discussing everything pop culture and celebrity and the news cycle and we absolutely love that space we also have a facebook group book club zara which is called shameless podcast book club i think it is called that michelle well done for knowing the name of our own facebook groups there are some amazing book recommendations and conversations about novels in there so check it out come hang out with us until then see you on thursday cannot wait see you on friday for love etc and zara i'll see you as soon as we turn (laughs) off the microphone thank you so much guys bye this episode was recorded at dusco asia pacific's leading co-working space provider and the home of our office michelle we are so excited to do our live career Q and A at their William Street office tomorrow night. Thank you so so much to everyone who bought tickets and sold out the event so quickly. Thank you. Shameless listeners can experience a week in the Just Co community with a free trial at any of their Sydney or Melbourne centres by following the link in our stories. And yes, guys, there is a table tennis table at our office. Come play us. I will win. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.